Welcome back, everyone, to Beginning at Moses. I'm your host, Canon and Anna Herberfeld. Just mispronounced my own name. It's okay. But I uh, have an audience now tonight, too, can laugh at some of my jokes or my foibles. And uh, glad to be able to squeeze in some time again to get out one of these episodes. So <clears throat> we continue to call it Beginning at Moses, but as we begin at Moses, we will start to notice now that we're getting farther and farther away from him. Today, we will notice that we take a step away into a new generation where Moses will not figure quite as prominently. We finish the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and the book of Joshua, which reads almost like a sixth book of the Torah, where Moses and the Mosaic Law still figure very prominently, the importance of faithfulness to the Law of Moses. Now in the book of Judges, which we consider today, there's another theme that's going to take place. The importance of rulership in this land that the Hebrews have inherited. That's why we put up an, a map, which I think it's important to consider from now on as we go through these books. We see now the promised land, the holy land, the land of Israel, which is divided up among the 12 tribes. We call it Israel because that, of course, was the other name for Jacob. It was the name given to Jacob. But his sons make up the 12 tribes. And the promised land will now be divided amongst the 12 tribes. <clears throat> Except, of course, for, as you remember, the tribe of Levi, which does not quite have land as an inheritance. They have only the Lord as an inheritance because that is the priestly tribe. As you probably don't know the names of all 12 tribes by heart, a lot of these names are still unfamiliar to you. But perhaps a couple are, are familiar. You notice at the bottom there in the south, we have Judah. We have the territory of Judah. That one is probably most familiar to you because that's going to be one that's going to hang on. We're going to see over time that the other names are going to get lost. In fact, in the end, all that will remain is Judah, because many centuries later, when this land is taken over by the Romans, the Romans will decide to call the whole place Judea, after that one tribe, Judah, which is where we get our word Jew. <clears throat> but for now, the Hebrews have just inherited the promised land. There are still many enemies within this land whom they have to combat. <clears throat> Nevertheless, they are divided up in the lands. Now, when we began this study, I told you that when we were looking for the Messiah, when we were trying to find Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, on every page of the Old Testament, we are looking for prophet, priest, and king, or at least one of those figuring prominently. And when we take a first look at Judges, we seem to see that, well, in Judges, we don't find any of these. So how are we going to find Christ in Judges? Because we don't seem to find prophets... We don't find priests, certainly not figuring prominently in the narrative, and we certainly don't find a king. The great theme of this book is going to be that there is no king. And in fact, that's why things are going so wrong. <clears throat> we might say in a certain sense that there is a prophet if we want to consider the traditional author of the book of Judges. No author is listed for this book, but it is listed among the former prophets, just like Joshua. And traditionally, the Hebrews considered the author of this book to be Samuel. So we're going to get to 1 and 2 Samuel, 
in a couple of weeks or a couple of years, depending on how fast I go. But <clears throat> traditionally, we considered Samuel as writing this. It makes very good sense. There's no reason to reject this tradition. It would seem very logical that he would be the one to write this. So at the beginning of the Davidic reign, so that is at the end, close of the reign of Saul, so circa 1000 BC, that would be when this book was written, traditionally ascribed to the prophet Samuel. And we'll hear more about when we get to the books that bear his name. The theme that we have here, which recurs throughout the book, it's a refrain that we find in this book, a refrain that we find in the book of Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So this we hear again and again in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So if they didn't have kings, what did they have? They had judges. So is that sort of the equivalent to the United States being ruled solely by the Supreme Court? As some say, perhaps we are. Well, perhaps similar. But the idea here was that under the Mosaic Law, what we had, what we should have had, is a theocracy. What we should have had is God is king. God is the king of the Hebrew people. They don't have an earthly king. They have God alone as their king. And all they need then is arbitrators, just certain people who can interpret the law of Moses, who can apply it and apply its penalties. And that's how Israel can be ruled, as long as they always maintain God as their king. Well, you can already tell that things aren't going to go too well in that sense, because what happens here? With this model of God as king and just earthly rules who don't really rule as a king, but simply arbitrate the law, well, things go very badly, because we have this theme that in those days there was no king, and therefore every man did what was right in his own eyes. <clears throat> this is very important to remember, because this probably the most important part of this book of Judges, where we don't find any explicit prophecies of Christ. We're going to see some prefigurations of Christ, but no explicit prophecies of Christ. But it's the overall theme that's going to be important. So what we find first, the, the theme is, with God as king in heaven, and the people on earth without a, an earthly king, it doesn't work. Because what's going to happen again and again? The reason why a judge comes is because Israel sins. Again and again, we'll hear, Israel did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and went after the gods that were all around them with these other peoples. So that model doesn't work. And what we're going to find later, I won't get too far ahead of myself, but what we'll see later, perhaps not a surprise to you, in the books that follow, we'll see, well, the solution then is give us a king. Give us a human king. Then everything will be great, right? And, and in fact, even if Samuel did write this book, we know that there's this tension there. This idea that, you know, things aren't going to be perfect, even if you have an earthly king. And that's one of the most beautiful passages in the book of 1 Samuel, which we look forward to getting to sometime soon. But we'll see is that that was not going to work, too. So what, what is going to be the final solution, then? If having God in heaven as king doesn't work, if having an earthly king doesn't work, well, the solution, then, can only be have God come to earth as king. <clears throat> so have a God and human king. But that's what we start with here, with this theme that things are not going well with the theocracy model. The law of Moses and the theocracy it sets up is only making us more and more aware of the sinfulness of the people and their need for God, their need for redemption. 
the theme then, the kind of the structure of this book then, is we're going to see these various judges who rise up to deliver Israel when it falls into sin. When Israel falls into sin, into disobedience to the Lord, there's a judge who comes who sets them right, and then they have peace for a while until, once again, they fall into idolatry, and then they're punished again by being delivered into the hands of their enemies until, once again, a judge comes to deliver them. And so what the book, the book is structured based on listing these judges. So they list these judges, six major ones, six minor ones. So 12 judges total. And with another theme in there, just very briefly, another one who sets himself up briefly as king, as a sort of anti-judge, before he gets blotted out as well. And then we're left at the end, hoping very soon for a king. So what sets us up for this is the theme of Israel's unfaithfulness. So after the death of Joshua, which is recounted for us again in this book, what we're told is that after that great generation of Joshua, remember that things were going pretty well there in the time of Joshua. Compared to how it was under Moses, things were going pretty well. And then what we find here, what we're told in chapter 2, is that that whole generation was gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel. So now this new generation, ungrateful young wretches, and what will they do? And that says, goes on to say, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So what are Baals? B-A-A-L. So Baal, you've probably heard that before, right? So Baal, very important God among the people surrounding the Israelites. So a Canaanite God, a God of fertility. And one thing we'll get to later on, we'll hear that what, what do we read in the scriptures? In the Psalms we read, what? The gods of the Gentiles are devils. That's what the scripture tells us. And in fact, they always get confused with that. And so these names of gods also are the names of devils for the Israelites. So that's why Baal, B-A-A-L, is spelled slightly differently and is the name also of the devil, Beelzebub. So, similar. so these gods always get confused with, with the devils because that's what they are, in fact. So not only are they simply vain things, are they simply not, not true gods, the Israelites had no trouble believing also that they could actually be evil spirits, so they could be devils that are being served. And the Israelites now go after these false gods. So we're told first over these ones named Baal, and these ones named Ashtar, Ashter, which what, which you've heard that probably before, and some other spellings farther to the east, it's called Ishtar, right? So a female goddess, too, that they go after, <clears throat> another god of, of love and of fertility. And so what, is the, what do we read then in chapter 2? The, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the power of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed down to them, and soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and behaved worse than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice. From now on, 
I will not drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, that by them I may test Israel, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out at once, and he did not give them into the power of Joshua. So then we'll find that these nations are going to remain in the land. They're going to remain among the Israelites. Some of them will become alive with the Israelites from time to time and become their friends. Others will always be their enemies. We've heard about some of them before. The Amalekites, for instance, you may remember them. The Amalekites who encountered them, tried to destroy them almost as soon as they got out of Egypt. They're going to hang around all through this, all the way into the time of the kings. Also, the Moabites. I don't know if anyone remembers the Moabites. So Moab, right? Moab is near the, the Dead Sea, so down southeast. And that land of Moab is going to become very important for the next book, Book of Ruth. And the Moabites, actually the descendants of Lot. Remember the nephew of Abraham? Remember that? Well, Abraham left Sodom, and then things went really bad for Lot, right? So Moab is the incestuous son of Lot. And then, very important, the, the Philistines. Probably heard of the Philistines before, maybe? So, not Philippines, but Philistines. So, the Philistines are very interesting because they hang on in quite an important way. They even hang on into our day because they're related to the word Palestine. Related to the word Palestine, Palestinian. So, a testimony to the fact that there have always been other peoples living and that Holy Land, and if you go to the Holy Land today, there are people who still insist on that. They say, no, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from the Holy Land, but I'm not Jewish. No, I'm from my, it's not that I'm a Jew and then I became a Christian. I think that my people were always here, and yes, I'm a Christian, but or maybe some of them are not, some of them are, are Muslim, but even the ones who are Christian, you can meet them and say, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a Jewish Christian. My, my people are, have always been in this land, but they're not, they're not Jews. So there are remnants of those peoples even, even there today, and as, as we see from the testimony of the word Palestinian. So the Philistines, which we'll, know, we'll, see, we'll hear about again and again, especially in the time of the kings. Move on then to consider some of these judges. We're not going to consider all of them in detail because even the book doesn't. Even the book of Judges moves quickly through some of them. So we find some wonderful peace under the first ones. Under Othniel and Ead, we find times of great peace, 40 years under Othniel, 80 years under Ead. And then some of them are considered much more rapidly. One of them almost, well, a little sad. Of course, it is what it is. The divine word is what it is. But one, just because I really love his name, Shamgar. So I wish we heard more, a little more about Shamgar, but we don't. All we hear is one verse about Shamgar. So sometimes it passes very quickly and leads into a very important one. So after him... So that after it was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he too delivered Israel. So I like to mention that one, even though it's so brief. Well, first of all, because I love the name Shamgar. And then also, oh, it's really good, isn't it? Come on. Yes. All right, so Shamgar. And then I like also that he killed the Philistines with an ox goad. So that's the thing about we find with all of the judges is there's always something a little quirky about them. None of them are really ideal heroes. Or as we'll see, heroines. So this is a very important passage. The, the, the fathers really marveled at this. Uh, some of them had a, had a great love for this next passage here. When we get to chapter 4, the first one I really want to consider is, so a judge S. 
So we have a judge who's a woman. St. Ambrose really loved this, this passage in the book of Judges. He, in a certain point, preaching to, to women, he makes an appeal to them to see about the great dignity of women and what, what heights of virtue they are called to in seeing the example of Deborah. So Deborah, another great name. We're very used to that name. Not as used to, you know, Shamgar we don't ever hear. But I really like that name, though. And Deborah. So Deborah, which means honeybee. So a very sweet name. And that really wasn't meant to be a pun, but that's okay. You can laugh at it. All right, come on, stop. YouTube audience is much more serious than you. So how do we begin in chapter 4? Very important passage. You really should read that over. Go home after this and read chapter 4 and following. You should very much know the story of Deborah, just as you should know the story of Gideon and the story of Samson, which we're all going to consider tonight with the time that remains to us. So we begin it once again that the sons of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord after he had died, not even considering Shamgar. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Haroshabeth of Goim. Very hard to say, I know. But then the sons of Israel cried to the Lord for help, and he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the sons of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And now what do we hear about? Deborah. So now Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the country of Ephraim. So the country of Ephraim, remember that's one of the tribes, right? So country of Ephraim. Rama, you may have heard of before, right? You may remember that. Okay, well, Rama, right? You hear about that with the holy incident. Holy innocence, right? The voice was heard in Rama, Rachel weeping for her children. So, because that's the site of her grave. And so, the, and because that's very close to where that happened with the holy innocence, all this is very much nearby in the, in the areas of Jerusalem. At this point, Jerusalem is not yet a Hebrew city, still under, under pagan control. But, so between Ramah and Bethel, not to be confused with Bethlehem, we're going to hear about that in a minute. Now, Bethel is very important, right? The, the Ark of the Covenant was there for a very long time, right? Bethel, which means house of God, as opposed to Bethlehem, which means, amazingly, house of bread. <coughs> so, <coughs> so Deborah now is called up to be the deliverer of Israel, a woman. And it's not just one woman, but there's an interaction here in this territory, which we will know so well later on in the New Testament, between Deborah and another woman, Jael. So, J-A-E-L, right? So, Jael is sent to kill this great enemy of the Israelites, Sisera. Very similar to the story we'll hear later of Judith. You know, Judith will recall very much this episode of Jael and Sisera. And what happens here when Jael goes through this? She does this by a sort of of treachery and that she tricks Jael, what happened? She says, Sisera fled away in the battle on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. But there was peace between Jabin the king of Hezor and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. 
But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground as he was lying fast asleep from weariness, and so he died. And that enables the Hebrew commander, Barak, to win, because she goes out to meet him now as he was pursuing Sisera, and she went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. He went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. How then will she be praised now? Deborah will come now and sing a long canticle all through chapter 5. So all through chapter 5 is Deborah singing a canticle in honor of Jael for what she's done. And says, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. So what is the interaction here? Well, that recalls what? Right? What we hear later, right? That's Elizabeth talking to to Mary. Very similar words. So blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb. So the interaction here is very similar to that of Elizabeth and Mary. And the fathers will interpret this as saying, this prefigures, Jael prefigures the church. She prefigures the Blessed Virgin Mary. She also prefigures the church, especially what happens here. How, how is salvation, how is deliverance brought here? Why, by a stake, right? By a stake being driven in. So by the cross, as Origen says. So prefiguring, prefiguring the cross. It's very important the way this is placed, too, that we have this victory, we have this great judges, we have this woman, this holy woman who judges Israel, and this delivery through the hand of a woman, in, in language that very similarly recalls what we hear spoken of, the woman, even at the beginning, right? Even in Genesis, of how a victory will come through this woman. Far more spectacular, really, than who comes next. So in chapter 6, again, very important to go back and read afterwards, we have what? We have the story then of Gideon, who is not nearly as impressive. So after this 40 years of rest that comes through the victory of Deborah and Jael, we have then, oh, what do we have? Chapter 6, once again, oh, and the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed over Israel, and because of Midian, sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains, in caves and strongholds. And so now the Lord sends a judge again. So whom does he send now? He sends Gideon. So Gideon is called, but he's a rather cowardly figure. Nevertheless, he only does respond to his call and even achieves some great victory. So he achieves victory over their enemies and even destroys the altar of Baal. So brings Israel back to the worship of the true God. And Another interesting passage, always when we get into great detail in a certain passage, we have to wonder what what it's going to prefigure. Gideon says to God at the close of chapter 6, he says, If you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. 
Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak about this once. Please let me make trial only this once with the fleece. Please let it be dry only on the fleece. And on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. <clears throat> so the fathers will interpret this of this dew and the fleece. It's very strange detail. Why do we have all that about the dew and the fleece? But they say, so this prefigures that first, what is it is? It says first, dry on the ground and dew on the fleece. So the fleece is the chosen people. That's Israel. And so first, the truth moistens the fleece, that is, the, the chosen people, they receive the truth first, while the rest of the ground, that is, the rest of the earth, the world remains dry without the truth. Then, the second time, though, is the New Testament, when it is the, it is the fleece that will be dry because of their rejection of Christ, and then the dew will be on the ground all over the earth because the truth will spread through the church throughout the world. So that prefiguration a little more. It's only, that's one of those ones where only afterwards when we have the fullness of truth, we can look back and see that prefiguration if we have the eyes of faith. Not as clear as some of the other ones. And especially what we're going to see now with the story of Samson. Now, Gideon, just to finish this very quickly, so Gideon refuses to be king. The people want to make him king after this, and he actually refuses and says, no, God alone must be your king. So he does end that way without allowing them to make him king. However, one of his sons from a concubine, Abimelech, will decide, no, but I'll take that job just fine. So he actually does set himself up as king, but it's a totally failed monarchy. It only lasts a short while, and he has a terrible downfall. And, and the idea of a monarchy is once again abandoned. <clears throat> So now we move to another, perhaps the most important figure that we need to consider, the figure of Samson. So Samson, at least you've heard of Samson, I hope. So Samson and Delilah, right? So that starts in chapter 13. We hear about his birth even. So it's very interesting because so many of the details here seem to prefigure John the Baptist. So what do we hear? First of all, once again, we start as we always must with, the sons of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there were certain men of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, so the tribe of Dan, right? The tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. Ah, his wife was barren. Hmm. Okay. His wife was barren and had no children. Okay. We'll hear about that again, right? So... The angel, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, said, Behold, you are barren and have no children. You shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, beware and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very terrible. I did not ask him where he was, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from, the birth, from birth until the day of his death. And that is what, wait, so a, a lifelong Nazarite. You may remember from the book of Numbers, we talked about Nazarites. So they're the consecrated religious of the old law. Right? Except that normally you didn't have to be one for life. You'd be one for a time. You'd be a Nazarite for a time, but not your whole life. But this one's going to be one for his whole life. 
So all that we've heard so much there with the barren mother, angel of the Lord coming, and he's going to be a Nazarite, all that is prefiguring very much John the Baptist. The difference is, what, what is Samson going to be? He's going to be a terribly, terribly tragic figure. Because he's going to be a terribly failed Nazarite. He will go even beyond prefiguring John the Baptist, even to prefigure Christ, because he's a failed Christ. He will show everything that plays out in his life is sort of the opposite of what's going to happen to Christ. He's not the first prefiguration of that type. He's not the only prefiguration of that type that we're going to see. How does he do this? Because we're going to find, what does he do? He doesn't obey any of these things. He, he will not be true to his vow. First of all, what is he? We find out what happens first. Well, <clears throat> the first thing he does is he decides he wants a wife from among the Philistines. So in chapter 14, we find out he finds a Philistine woman whom he finds fair. He would like to have her. And so he tells his parents, I want her to be my wife. His parents try to dissuade him, but he's sure about it. He wants it. Even yet, though, we're told that this is not his downfall, for it says what? His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord. He was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So it's interesting that we hear that said there in verse 4, because what does it mean? Once again, it's, it's prefiguring something here, that there's something mystical about him doing what normally shouldn't be done, which is taking a wife from among the non-Hebrews, so from among the Gentiles. Well, this does prefigure Christ, right? Taking a wife, that is the church, from among those who are not of his people, because his salvation is for everyone. And so he takes his wife. But what do we find, too? Something else happens in this passage. It says, Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and he came to the vineyards of Timnah. Behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion asunder, as one tears a kid, and he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After a while he returned to take her, that is, his future wife. And then he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out under his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But they, he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. So what a strange passage, right? Well, what are, why are we hearing about the carcass of a lion? So what is this? Well, for the fathers, there could be no question. What is it? So he, first of all, he, he does disobey the Nazarite code here. Because a Nazarite is never supposed to touch anything dead. He doesn't kill. He doesn't touch any dead bodies, anything like that. But that's what he did. And so what is this lion that he did? So for the fathers, this is the lion of Judah, of course, right? So this is the lion of the tribe of Judah who was slain, and from his body the church comes as the honey of wise teaching. So it is very striking to find this, this lion here, this lion who is slain. And so now he goes, and what does he do? He now takes this woman and makes a great feast, a great drinking feast. Okay, breaking another thing, right? Next thing he breaks, what well, you're not supposed to do. If you're a Nazarite, you never drink, right? So St. John the Baptist never drank. And you're not supposed to have any wine or strong drink. <clears throat> and now we find, I'm moving through the narrative rather rapidly, but you find that what is, he's betrayed now by his wife, his Philistine wife, because he gives a riddle to the Philistines hoping to fool them, and she 
learns the riddle from him and then betrays it to him. And so he says to the Philistines, he said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not have found out my riddle. And so, <clears throat> nevertheless, he still won. He said, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave their festal garments to those that had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. The only thing striking about that passage, said, what are you talking about? He gave his wife to his best man? It's very interesting because what is that? That language will be used again. John the Baptist will use that. Right? He used that in John chapter 3. He talks about the best man. He says, he says, well, I'm just the best man. That's all who I am. He uses that very term. He says, I'm the best man. The bridegroom's coming. I'm just getting things ready. So I'm going to take the spouse now and give her to who she belongs to to the actual bridegroom. So it's sort of reversed there in the language of John the Baptist. <clears throat> so Samson is very powerful. He has, as a Nazarite, he has really superhuman powers. He has superhuman strength. And so he's greatly feared in battle, but his downfall is going to come now. There's one thing left that he has to transgress, right? He's already had strong drink. He already took honey from a dead lion. And now, what's going to happen? His great downfall is going to be, the one thing you're not supposed to do as a Nazarite, you're never supposed to cut your hair. You have to go through your whole life without a razor, as we just heard, right? So this fall will come not through his wife, but through another Philistine woman, Delilah, which really brings out the meaning of his name, because what it, Samson means son, like the sun, right? In like the sun in the sky, right? Whereas Delilah is related to the Hebrew word for night. So Samson now is going to be overtaken by this night woman. So now Samson seems to be smart enough at first because, again, she asks him three times to betray the secret of his strength, that she wants to betray him so that her Philistine brethren can kill him. And each time he lies to her, First time he says, oh, all you have to do is uh, just bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, and then I'll be powerless against the Philistines. And so she sends for the, she does that, she binds him, then she secretly sends for the Philistines and says, come get him. And then she says, look out, Samson, they're coming. And then, of course, it's not true. He just breaks apart the bowstrings like nothing, and then he kills the Philistines. So that happens again. Then he says, do that with strings. He says, do that with ropes. And then finally she says, why do you keep lying to me? And then finally, finally he, he since he's very lovesick for Delilah, he finally takes pity, and tells her the truth. He says, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And this is precisely what happens. So then she does trick him. Now she does cut his hair. <clears throat> she calls for a man who does shave. She, he shaves off the seven locks of his head. <clears throat> and then once again, sense for the Philistines, but this time they get him. They seize him, and they gouge out his eyes. And they bring him down to Gaza, bound with the bronze fetters, and he grounded the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven, we're told. So, oh, what's coming? So what's coming? Now, what, what comes now is amazing. And this is what the fathers really dwell on. So what happens to him now? It says now, we find out about, at the close of chapter 16, they, they say, The lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, 
and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has slain many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may make sport for us. So they took him out of prison, and what did they do? They mocked him. Right? They took Samson out of prison, and they mocked him. And then what did they do? And then he said, They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars. Remember, he's blind. Huh? Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson made sport. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I beg you, and strengthen me. Only this once, O God, that I may be avenged upon the Philistines for one of my two eyes. And Samson grasped two middle pillars upon which the house rested, and he leaned his weight upon them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and all the people that were in it. So the dead whom he slew at his death were more than those whom he had slain during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So this man who transgresses the Nazarite law, well, what is he similar to? So that he does prefigure our Lord, doesn't he? Our Lord, who we are told came eating and drinking, right? John the Baptist came not eating and drinking. Our Lord came eating and drinking. <clears throat> our Lord was made the fool before his persecutors. And our Lord also had his hands stretched out on the beams of the cross. Furthermore, we are told here, those he killed, those Samson killed, in death were more than those he killed even, even in life. So too, those our Lord saved in his death were more even than those he saved in his life. For his short public ministry, he healed and raised from the dead only a very, only a very few, whereas his death brought salvation to all. So a very new type of prefiguration that we see now in the book of Judges, that someone who is a tragic figure, who's a failed Christ figure, although in the end does great good by his death, but in fact, by all that, prefigures Christ, who, Christ who will undo all of that, just as he undoes the sin of Adam. With that, I'll bring the consideration of judges to a close, just remembering what we're told at the end. We have once again that refrain. The refrain that we have at the end is that every man under this system we have does what is right in his own sight. So this system of having God as king in heaven and man judging himself on earth does not work. What we're going to try next is something else. We're going to try, let's see, have a human king on earth and see how that works. And we're going to see that also is ultimately going to be a terrible failure, leaving only that final solution of God himself coming as king on earth. <clears throat> this we will prepare for now as even toward the end of the book of Judges, we start to hear about another town, not Bethel, but Bethlehem, this house of bread, which is going to be a very important town for the book we see next, the book of Ruth, which tells us now about the ancestry of this kingship to come, of King David and ultimately of Christ our king. We'll see you next time.